Welcome to the Theology Podcast. And today we've got a fun show, a fun topic uh, to share with you. But before we get into it, uh, let's introduce ourselves in case this is the first time you've ever tuned in. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written some books. And my latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil. Okay, Tom, how about you? Tom Price. I'm a teacher predominantly. I teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I teach uh, theology, ethics, and philosophy. Great. Now, Glenn, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and introduce the topic of the day, and also talk a little bit about your new book. I saw the cover. It looks great. Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, and I have to specify, according to my contracts with different organizations, I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. The, the memorandums of understanding and such are why I have to say that every week. <laughs> um, I have a new book coming out, or late March, early, uh, mid to late March. I don't know the exact date yet. Uh, It's called 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. It's a series of biographies of Christians from around the world, all different kinds of walks of life, who lived out their faith in all their various callings, doing all kinds of different things. And the point of the book is, number one, Christianity is not a peculiarly Western religion. It's not American. It's not European. It is literally global. But also that we can, you know, people have done amazing things by just simply living consistently with their faith uh, in all different kinds of walks of life, because the gospel uh, really extends to every area of life. It's not just about personal salvation or morality or whatever. And this gives you a whole lot of illustrations Mm -hmm. of that. And hopefully it'll be a bit of an inspiration to you, whatever you're called to do. Yeah, the cover looks great. It's got photographs of some of the people you're talking about and with nice design. And it's going to be in hardcover, which is great. So I think right. you know, yeah. that's beautiful. Great. All right. What so, are we talking about today? Um, actually, if you're interested in the book, go to uh, Canon. What is it? Canonpress.com, I believe it is. Yeah. And uh, look for it there rather than Amazon. I'd rather have the publisher get sure. the the profits than, <laughs> than um, the beast. Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. And, and and speaking of beasts, our topic for the day is a book by G.K. Chesterton called The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, the subtitle is A Nightmare. <laughs> and one of the things that's really important, according to G.K. Chesterton himself when he was writing about the book, is he said, you know, a lot of people reading the book don't bother reading the cover. Mm. And they they try to interpret it and come up with all kinds of ideas about it, but they miss the subtitle, mm-hmm. A Nightmare. Yeah. So we, we do have to keep that in mind as we're going along. But this book has been described as G.K. Chesterton's masterpiece. Mm. Um, you know, we all know, uh, people who know Chesterton know things like Orthodoxy or The Everlasting Man, um, the Father Brown stories, those kinds of things. This was considered his his best book by a lot of critics, and it has never been out of print since it was published in 1908. Wow. Um, probably the best description I, I read of it was from a critic who said, this is one of the hidden hinges of 20th century literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes us from you know, the the sort of absurd, fantastical worlds of Lewis Carroll or Edmund Lear and uh, turns it into the 
nightmare fantastical worlds of people like Kafka or uh, Borges. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's it it's an important book in 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 a lot of ways. But for some reason, I haven't run into too many people who have actually read it. Isn't yeah. that wild? I've 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 read it uh, maybe yeah. two or three times, and I I really like it. It's yeah. it's one of my favorites by Chesterton for sure. Yeah, it's very good. yeah. So um, for those of you who haven't read it, I'm I'm afraid in order for this podcast to make any sense at all, uh, there are going to be some spoilers. <laughs> right, so right. unfortunately, you know, there, there's no way of doing this without the spoilers. Hmm. One, one of the things I will say, though, before we get into the plot is that when you read it, take it, don't, don't try to just rush through it to see what's happening. Hmm. Because you are going to miss all kinds of Chestertonian wit all the way through. <laughs> there, are all, there are all these little subtle cheap shots and philosophical <laughs> ideas and things like that that, that go throughout it uh, that, that are, are just thoroughly delightful. And the story itself, it, it presents itself as if it were a detective story. Yeah. Um, or an espionage story. Yeah, it's almost um, like a James Bond kind of setup, right? <laughs> and, and actually, someone commented that it was as you know, it was as much of a thriller as what you get from Ian Fleming. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, they specified Ian Fleming. You know, sort of action thing and all that, but it's philosophical. It is uh, political. It is um, social satire. It is all kinds of different things. Um, I particularly enjoyed the rather extreme cheap shots he takes at German philosophy. <laughs> so, um, so I'll, I'll just sort of note that as we go in. Okay, so the premise of the story is that the main character, uh, a guy named Syme, is, um, he's a poet, but he has been recruited into a special uh, branch of Scotland Yard that are philosophical detectives because, he says, the great threat, now, there's a lot of prescient stuff in here. Oh, yeah. I, he said, the, the, the great threat in our era isn't your common criminal. It's not the guys who, you know, rob, rob you or whatever. The great threat are the philosophical criminals. <laughs> These criminals who have the, and particularly anarchists in this yeah, period, yeah, yeah. who have a particular view of the world that is exceedingly dangerous and that um, will cost people's lives and everything else. And so what they need are people like poets and philosophically minded people um, who have the sophistication to understand and engage in this um, philosophical detective work. Right, right. <laughs> and well, it, and Slime, as a poet, is one of the people who gets recruited in. Yeah, and, and it's, it's just undeniable that that's the case. I mean, when was this published? I'm just taking a 1908. Look. Okay, yeah. I think you mentioned that. So we're, we're, it's before the, the Bolshevik Revolution. It's before the Nazis. Um, you know, and so that was a period of time, I think, you know, when we think of it, isn't it Edwardian, Edwardian England? Yeah, it, it has right. a, it has a kind of, uh, uh, I mean, that's kind of like the, the, the Bertie Wooster and, and Jeeves kind of, kind of world where, you know, everything seems to be, I guess, um, 
fairly stable, but at the same time, you get a sense of something percolating beneath the surface that's un, uh, yeah. I guess, uh, comfortable that people are aware of. That it seems like something's about to burst out onto the, into the world. Well, the fact of the matter is that in this period, there were genuine anarchists out oh, there yeah. who did genuinely blow people up. Mm-hmm. They 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 threw bombs, you know. And that's one of the thing that the things that um, that the uh, uh, Chesterton uh, plays on. That's you know that's the great danger in the book is is you know the, these bomb plots and things like that. So that that that's the, your initial premise. You don't exactly start there. You don't find that out until somewhere you know as you're a little way into the book. But that that's at least where it will start off. And you and, have that. You have that little pivot going on there, too, that I think uh, it goes back to what Chris was saying that's kind of percolating. It's this tension between the emphasis on law and society and civilization and, and then the poet and the anarchist, that, that, that kind of seeing that law is, is immoral now and that you're at, a, you're at a point of divide. And I think that, that explains some of the tension going on there. This isn't just a little group that is going to be uninfluential. It's, it's an increasingly growing group that if this takes off, especially by their emphasis on the poet, it's kind of a, a romantic humanism, if you will, yeah. that, that yeah. uh, is trying to replace Christian consciousness and, and the law shaped by that Western civilization. Yeah, ec- except Chesterton's argument is you have your sort of garden variety anarchists who are the types that you're talking about, yeah. but operating behind those garden yeah. variety anarchists, you have these people who are enemies of humanity, enemies yes. <laughs> of reality, want to destroy everything. Yeah. Um, and these, these guys are the ones who they're really concerned about, not your just sort of average garden variety anarchists. It's, it's these guys who... They, they, he, he describes them literally as the enemies of humanity. And he makes the point that they're always the rich and powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he says that, that people who are, are poor don't want, you know, they may want better policing, but they don't yeah. want no policing. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's something that the uh, Antifa people never quite picked up on. Well, yeah, yeah. and if you, if you, if you, do, you kind of do the quick kind of survey of the Antifa people, they really do kind of fit the, the model. You, know, you just think about what we saw in the 60s. You know, most of the revolutionaries were kids that were coming from privileged backgrounds. They weren't, you know, maybe with the exception of the Black Panthers, you didn't have um, the kind of um, dangerous, well, I, I guess the, the, this gets into, a, get into an interesting, I guess, uh, subplot maybe not to, to this particular story but to political philosophy in general and that is it's uh, actually in the story too but yes yeah, yeah. but regular yeah. people are always a big disappointment to revolutionaries have you ever noticed this mm-hmm. they, they, yeah. they're just like why why can't we, these people get fired up uh like we yeah. are for them and yeah. most of the time they're interested in just kind of enjoying life and getting yeah. as much out of it as they can yeah, yeah, and, and Chesterton talks along the way about how normal people they, they just they will not go with anarchism. They just yeah. won't do it. Yeah, yeah. It's, this reminds me of it. It's, it's tangentially related. But I lived in Cambridge, you know, for a decade, and right between Harvard and MIT. So it was a, sort of a 
uh, an environment, and this was back in the days of rent control and before all the gentrification and stuff like that. So it was, so Central Square was still a little seedy uh, in those days. And, and we had a grocery store that sold all the things that regular people, poor people enjoyed. Wonder Bread, Twinkies, <laughs> Jiffy Peanut Butter, all that kind of stuff, you know. And so the the activists, you know, these foodie types who are like out to change the world, for, you know, uh, <laughs> they decided that that a food co-op would be like the thing to replace this, you know, regular grocery store, this, <laughs> you know, cruddy little grocery store. So anyway, they put in this really, uh, you know, sort of foodie paradise and the poor people hated it. You know, they were wondering, where's my Wonder Bread? Where's my, yeah. where's my Skippy peanut butter? It, all they can find is like seven grain bread and like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, fresh ground peanut butter. I don't want that stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, the interesting thing, by the way, Syme, uh, the character, his background is uh, he came from a family of, um, well, sort of radicals they they were in rebellion against pretty much everything so red diaper baby and 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 because of that he got driven to being very conservative and law and order type (laughs) that's the only way you can you can rebel when you come from that kind of background and actually that's what he said that, yeah, that's what Justin said it's the only way you can rule it reminded me actually of a calvin and hobbes comic where he had, um, you know, his, his parents, um, you know, liked like you know, pop music and all that. So he went out and bought Easy Listening. <laughs> it was his way of rebelling against his parents. And he's talking to Cobbs about it and saying, yeah, I like to play it real soft. <laughs> That's um, well, it, but yeah. it is, it is inter- interesting to note that there is, you know, this, there is, you, you see this always in, in societies, um, you know, I, I will be following this up with Elio, so it, it will be repeated again, but there's, there's this, this pol- pol- polarities that work, but they tend to still, they st- tend to share as much as they disagree with a lot in common. That's why they can be the kind of polarities. And so, yes, the running, you know, the influence or the direction going to left ends up sometimes swinging rebels to the opposite side. And I, and I think this way, this way you always have this, this b- bit of a tension where one side sees the other as fascist, the other side sees the other as totalitarians, and they, they're never able to kind of resolve that conflict. And I think this work, even though it isn't addressing that, you know, from that, that angle, is, is sensitive to that point. Yeah. One of the things, though, that, again, this is just uh, to put an exclamation point on it, his, his argument that the elitists, it, it's the elitists who are the real revolutionaries. It's, they always come from the elites. Yeah, that's true. And they, they will use people as a way of trying to reinforce their power. He says, you know, the one thing that the elites don't want is, you know, in a sense— it, it, it kind of goes both ways. The one thing that they don't want in society is strong government and power because that means restrictions on their ability to do whatever it is they want. Yeah. Whereas the, you know, the poor, the common people want controls in society to prevent them from being abused. The wealthy and powerful don't want these controls. They want to be a law unto themselves. That's yeah. why they're attracted to anarchism. That's why they end up being the leaders all the time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also think that one of the things that I think elites don't appreciate is that when it comes to the poor, and I've uh, seen this up close and personal, 
is when you don't possess anything in, you know, in terms of uh, wealth, property, etc. what do you value? You tend to value stable sort of community that you understand and you have uh, vital connections in. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds like small town America. That sounds like uh, a, a uh, sort of uh, kind of or insulated and maybe even kind of uh, Philistine neighborhood in New York. <laughs> you know, in other words, the things that that uh, artists hate are the <laughs> things that uh, oftentimes poor people cherish. And yet, these artists they consider the, themselves the vanguard who speak for the poor. Yeah. They don't even understand these people. In fact, they don't yeah. even like them. Yeah. Yeah. So th this is one complex of themes here. Another interesting thing that he plays around a lot with, along with the cheap shots at German philosophy, um, <laughs> which we may return to, um, because actually it bears a lot of resemblance to postmodernism, the way he approaches it. But th one of the other things that's really clear as you're reading the book is that um, it takes a great deal of organization and structure for anarchism to move forward. <laughs> and isn't this, isn't, isn't this sort of the ironic point in the story, if I remember right, where one of them, uh, their names are escaping me now, is it George? And, uh, well, anyway, where one of them is talking about how significant poetry is and, you know, the anarchists and how great it is. And the other one says, yeah, basically like the, the kind of uh, time scales for the London underground. London, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that sign, the guy who has grown yeah, up in yeah. this um, uh, rebelling against everything, his view, he, he said the most poetic thing is the timetables for the, the trains. <laughs> uh, and, and the other guy is saying that anarchism is art. <laughs> and he says that our goal is to get rid of God. It is to get rid of morality. It is to get yeah. rid of all restraints. You know, this is what he's saying, which yeah. in fact is actually sort of the modern goal of things. Get rid of yeah. truth and falsehood, get rid of right and wrong, get rid of all of those kinds of things. Chesterton is seeing this in 1908 and we are living it in the 2020s. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, the, uh, the train <laughs> station one I thought was a... a <laughs> that, that was a bit of a stretch for me, but okay, I'll give it to him. <laughs> um, so, but, but like I said, th this, this idea, I mean, he really, he really pokes fun at the entire concept of anarchism because in order to make it work, it does need to be such so highly organized and regimented. <laughs> well, I think um, one of the things that, that's good to note at this point is that this is uh, Chesterton skewering his own sort of uh, peers. Chesterton was an artist. Yep, he was yeah. a he was a poet. He was a yeah. he was a you know a writer of fiction. He actually went to art school. He, I've got yeah. a I've got a book uh, with a collection of his sort of scribbles and doodles and stuff like that. He was very talented, and he his style actually has a kind of almost Disney esque feel if you if you if you look at some of his work and his caricatures are great. You know, he, he <laughs> yeah. you know, when he particularly when he's making fun of artists or or, you know, thinkers or whatever. So he's 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 not making fun of people he doesn't know. He's making fun of people he knows really, very well and people he actually is, uh, spends a lot of time with. And I and I, I and I and I think enjoyed being with. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 well, again, keep in mind the subtitle, The Nightmare, because it gets progressively more and more surreal as we work through the book. <laughs> but, um, the, okay, so you've got Simus, this philosophical detective. Um, hovering in the background, there is this uh, Supreme Anarchist Council uh, that consists of seven members named <laughs> after the days of the week. <laughs> and um, Syme, through a mechanism which I will not explain here, gets himself elected as Thursday. <laughs> Hence the title, The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, as he's working with members of the Supreme Anarchist Council, they're plotting an, a, a bomb that's going to assassinate the czar and the president of France. And <laughs> decides he's got to find a way of thwarting this. So I, I want to I interject something here. There's something I remember from the story that actually was an inspiration for a scene in a book I wrote. Was it this, wasn't there a table in like a room that turn, that's actually on top of a, like a, a giant screw that sort of screws yes. into the earth and he descends in right. this <laughs> giant screw. That, that image is something I actually used because <laughs> it was so striking to me. Um, go ahead and describe it maybe in some ways that maybe I'm missing because I, I, it's been a while since I've read it. Well, what, what happens is um, Syme is a poet and there's another guy who is a poet who is a, um, a self-proclaimed anarchist. And Syme claims that, tells the guy he's not serious about his, his anarchism. <laughs> and so this annoys the guy so much that he makes Syme swear an oath on his honor not to reveal anything that he's about to show him. And he takes them to this restaurant and they go in and they sit down at this table and all of a sudden it's on, as you say, on this sort of screw and it descends underground and you're in this, um, this uh, anarchist uh, <laughs> cell, in the midst of this anarchist cell, which, by the way, has got excellent gourmet quality food. <laughs> um, and uh, it's there that he finds out that this poet is, in fact, a genuine anarchist. Uh, and is serious about it. And it turns out that the head of the anarchist council, the Supreme Anarchist Council, a guy by the name of Sunday, has made it a rule that if you are a serious anarchist, you should not attempt to hide this. You should <laughs> talk about it all the time because then nobody will take you seriously. And you'll you'll then be able to operate with impunity because nobody will take you seriously. You're too public. <laughs> well, that, there's, there's, there's actually some... some, some um, I think something profound in that that philosophy, because that's what totalitarians um, have done in the past. You know, if you read Hannah Arendt, mm -hmm. um, she'll show you how the Nazis told you told everybody exactly what they were going to do to the Jews. Um, and nobody, nobody believed them. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah. how, how could you possibly do something that crazy? And then they did it. Same thing yeah. with the communists. You know, yeah. the Bolsheviks. They they would tell you exactly what they're going to do. It'd be like me walking up to you, Glenn, on the street and saying, I'm going to pick your pocket right now. And then I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, in, in any event, uh, where that goes is that cell is the one who has the right to elect Thursday. <laughs> and everybody and the, the, the real anarchist is sort of the shoe in. 
but he doesn't want to give away too much to Syme, uh, but especially because Syme then tells him that he's actually an underground policeman. <laughs> and and they're both on oath not to reveal this to anybody. <laughs> but and and you know the, the the anarchist is thinking if I try to shoot him now, I mean he has no honor at all. If I try to shoot him now and he gets away, he's going to be absolved of any. He's going to be able to reveal everything. So he, he's expected to win the election for Thursday. So he decides to do a sort of milksap presentation, um, basically taking the idea that if you're an open anarchist, it's not going to, you know, nobody's going to take you seriously. So he gives this really weak speech, <laughs> which alienates everybody else in the room. Yeah. And Prime gets up and gives a rousing anarchist <laughs> and he gets elected to be Thursday. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so in any event, uh, he, he, he goes to the meeting and presiding over it is Sunday. And Sunday is this, absolutely huge guy uh who seems huge to face right <laughs> huge face he, he seems to know everything and and uh actually is, is remarkably sarcastic i mean he's just 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 a delightful character um but um you discover that somebody else in the group is actually a um a uh a police spy um and so gogol is yeah. he's called he he gets kicked out, and Simon is just very relieved that he wasn't the one who was fingered. <laughs> but um, you move on from there, and you discover that ultimately that other members of the council are in fact police spies as well. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like they're I, all police spies, right? Yeah. yeah it, at the end of the day, you'll find out that all of them, except for Sunday, are police spies. And then you yeah. find out that Sunday was the guy who signed them all up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the thing, uh, think about, as, as policemen, signed them up as policemen. Yeah. And the thing I think about when I think about uh, Sunday is I think Orson Welles. If there's anybody who could have played Sunday, it's yeah. Orson Welles. Actually, Orson yeah. Welles was so impressed with the man who was Thursday that the Mercury Theater of the Air did yeah. it. Yeah, I've heard um, that. Actually, yeah. a, a bit before War of the Worlds, you can you can you actually exactly adapted it. Yeah, you can still you can still listen to that. I, I've heard it recently. I think even like YouTube and other places have the recording of it. Very very good. People can access that. Yeah. So the the one that I found absolutely the most wonderful was a uh, a guy who is um, you know old and can't move well and all of that who is a German philosopher. <laughs> this is where we get to the German philosophy again, yeah. and this guy ends up basically chasing Sign down, even though he's practically he can barely walk. He somehow manages to chase Syme down, and Syme is is just he thinks this is sort of this nightmarish thing that this guy who's a, a, nearly a cripple is able to keep up with him, and he keeps appearing and all of this. This is where you're in sort of the nightmare thing. You're in mm -hmm. Kafka, and then except Kafka hadn't written yet, and mm -hmm. then all then all of a sudden you find out that he's actually a young actor um, <laughs> in in heavy makeup because there's nobody who can can be quite as feeble. As a young, vigorous actor, he uh, they can do feeble better than anybody else. <laughs> and, and he said that the, the, he became he became this uh, he took on this role of the German philosopher because he was originally you know he made himself up as the guy and was going to go to this event where he was just to sort of make fun of him. 
And and he got there and he was spouting off all of this nonsense to these devotees. And then the real philosopher showed up. <laughs> and the the real philosopher attacked him, you, you know, using all of this the German philosophical jargon. And he replied with something even more incomprehensible and actually <laughs> incoherent. And people were judging between the two of them and they decided he must be the real philosopher and the other guy was a fake. <laughs> so the other guy gets thrown out and he makes a, he he's now traveling all around Europe trying to convince people he's the real philosopher. <laughs> and everybody takes this as as uh, as a good joke, uh, whereas the the actor then assumes the place of the philosopher and is therefore recruited into the police philosophical detective group. <laughs> um, but 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 the description of the total incoherence of what he was saying compared to what the German and for that matter the German philosopher was saying it sounded to me like postmodernism. Yeah. Well, this this brings um, up something I'd like to explore a little bit or think a little bit about, and that is I think that the premise is absolutely right uh, when we think about you know what are the what are the the things that are troubling the world. Well, the, it's ideas yeah. that people are. T- are acting on and these ideas are not sound they're crazy and many um i guess uh, earnest police work types you know in the fbi or whatever i don't know if they are up they're up for the challenge i i don't know if they really understand um what um you know is significant about ideas and how ideas have the, have a way of working, particularly ideologies, which are a particular kind of thing. And we could talk a little bit about that if we want, but, but, yeah, I, but I just don't know if, if, if a lot of guys are up for the challenge, uh, at least the ones who I see on television, I just, they're not, they don't impress me as people who have a, a very, uh, I guess, uh, insightful, uh, knowledge of the world of philosophy. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is what Chesterton suggests is, remember, it's the elites that are really pushing these ideas. And he suggests that they're going to, that the elites that are pushing these ideas are going to take over the other elites. They're going to, they're going to end up taking over the governments. They're going to end up taking over the police forces. They're going to end up taking over the military, all of these kinds of things. Um, and the only bulwark, perhaps, that's left are, is the common man. Uh, and I think that that is actually in some ways the situation that we see right now. I don't know that the the FBI and the people like that that you're referring to aren't capable of understanding the ideological issues. I think that they've adopted the ideology. Yeah, yeah. I and think that's- you know, we see this in universities. We see this in law schools. We see this everywhere. Yeah, and I think yeah, there is an already an embrace of it, and so the the capacity to discern the destructive ends, um, it, it it's just not there. I mean, this is something again, a later podcast I want to get into, but this way in which the destructive ends are already in the embrace, and and really. I mean, we could go through a long story of again how we how how we got here, but they they only tend to grab hold of certain sides of of that are offered, and these sides don't resolve themselves because there isn't a harmonious picture in in the fragments of the West, if you will. And the Enlightenment, I think, tried to do it, but because it didn't have a good theological root, wasn't able. And I think postmodernity kind of called 
called its its you know its deck and and forced its hand. And when it showed that that the ground of its vision was basically a rejection of Christianity or a a soft version of it, if you will. Um, it didn't have the ability to hold all of those things together and those fragments or whatever you want to call them, those pieces that they tried to kind of either bring into some kind of order, um, they rebel against each other. And so you have kind of the romantic dimension um, run very rebellious against the rationalist side. And as they run with that, they see anything that was built on that rational side as suspect. But if you don't have a kind, the capacity to reason with the romantics, you end up sort of where we end, you know, end up here, become sort of a, a commitment to some kind of idea or ideal, but it's completely, volu- you know, it's like a, I think in theology we call it fideism. It, they embrace it because it sounds like an ideal they should embrace, but it's really just a willed commitment in, at the end that is going to hold to it no matter what reasons um, challenge it because it seems like the right thing to embrace, like equity. You well, know? Let, let me think a little bit about a particular institution. Let's think about the military. So uh, there was a time when our elites saw military service as a obligation. You know, we, we would, you know, think about the Kennedys. You know, obviously the Kennedys have an interesting past. Um, maybe maybe they're a bad example, but <laughs> but but it just overall, you know, people from from the elite uh, sort of Eastern families uh, would go to West Point, Annapolis, whatever, and they and the, there would be members of the family who were in the officer corps. It doesn't happen uh, anywhere like it used to happen. And now uh, a lot of guys who are in the military are coming from, you know, middle class, lower middle class backgrounds. But the guys who are able to, I guess, a, a sort of rise in uh, rank tend to be the guys who know how to uh, parrot elite uh, nostrums. Yeah. So we think about what happened during the Obama years. Basically, all the old guard was was cleansed from yeah. the Pentagon and the various, uh, you know, divisions of the military. And the guys who were, you know, willing to just go along with the, you know, progressive uh, agenda in those in those uh, branches of the service were the ones who found themselves at the top. They're not they're not warriors. They're not accomplished fighters. They're basically ladder climbers uh, who really don't even understand what they're talking about. They, they just parrot whatever they, they hear the authority, yeah. sort of the people they they report to saying, I don't think that the people, when I, when I've listened to like your typical five-star general, who's never actually commanded a, a, you know, a force that's actually attacking anything. Basically he's just a, he's just a bureaucrat. <laughs> when I hear, when I hear that guy talk, I think you, what you're really good at, is making the people you you report to happy. That's what you're really good at. You're you and there are a lot of unhappy people in you know the services uh, who are the fighters who are losing faith in their leadership if they've not lost it. Or I've talked to guys who are special forces guys who are retired and they're discouraging their kids from going into the services. 
that's that's where we are right now. But it's because uh, getting back to this whole idea of the elites. So our generals, um, my my sense is that they're not um, blue blood types. They're just climbers. And yeah. uh, and and the elites have taken over the institutions, even institutions that we thought they would never they'd never gain control over, but they, they just purged them. I mean, they did it in a way that they, it wasn't like Stalin killing people. It was just basically Obama firing people or encouraging them to yeah. take an early retirement, that kind of thing. And, and the, the commitment of the elites was of course, to keep repeating their mantra that everything produced by the West or the country bad. And so there is a commitment that they opt into at some point, the ones that are going to climb socially, that are going to repeat and reiterate, and they're going to structure and hire all within those lines. And, and this is where I think we had a guest previously before, to conserve anything makes no sense here because there isn't le- anything left to conserve because it's basically been been gutted in these institutions, and it isn't their commitment. They're not committed to the same thing. So when they hold the ideals, they're not committed to them the way they were understood, um, and, you know, classically in any way. Um, and and so, yeah, you have basically, you know, a special vocation to uh, promote and defend what? <laughs> um, it has to be something that's constantly being changed and transformed towards some you know, very abstract ideal, um, and, but that's it. And so anything that falls short of the ideal is that there's your tension. Um, it, it, it can be eradicated. So if you're not really committed to any kind of realist vision that's going to accept the failures of, of uh, you know, of a vision, but also keep pushing towards, you know, realizable transformations or goals, I mean, if you're not going to be committed to that, everything has to be an endless revolution, then you you really do end up with nothing there other than just climbing the ladder and having control. Yeah, and um, getting back to the book, Justin, <laughs> again, this is one of these things that he anticipates. Um, you know, it, he says that, that um, the these people, you know, their their end game is the destruction not only of civilization but of humanity, of yeah. all life. They're yeah. they're fundamentally nihilistic. Mm-hmm. So, um, get, yeah, getting back to the uh, d- getting back to the the uh, discussion between the real and the fake German philosopher for a moment. <laughs> just one observation I would make when I said that this sounds very much like postmodernism. When I was on the job market for my um, my first job out of grad school. Uh, I went to the American Historical Association. <laughs> and this was in the heyday of deconstructionism and things like that. <laughs> and uh, I, I went to the the AHA because that's where you interviewed for jobs. <laughs> and so I was, I was there. I remember it was uh, around 11 o'clock and there was a session going on near where I was. So I decided to just sort of stop in and listen to it. Now, I have a reasonably large vocabulary. <laughs> I, I, I am a reasonably bright guy. But I was listening to the guy speaking from the stage, giving his paper, and I didn't understand a word of what he was talking about. Yeah. And I looked around the room and I saw all these people watching him and sort of nodding sagely. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, 
they don't understand him either. They're thinking about what they're going to have for lunch. <laughs> you know, th- this this dense, opaque language, yeah. I'm sure, is intended not only to sort of mark you as part of an elite and mark people as, you know, with you, but I think it's also intended to simply disguise the fact that they have nothing to say. Yeah, you, you have, especially the, the neologisms of people like Hegel and uh, Heidegger is one of the worst um, to read in, in, in German and the, the constant coining of new terminology or, you know, fitting together, you know, words into one word in such a way that you have to be able to interpret all of that, but somehow it misses whatever they're up to. It, it does. It, it eclipses any any point you think they're making. And somehow in that tension is supposed to be some, you know, some brilliant shining out. <laughs> it, 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 most even the scholars will say, well, if we understand this, <laughs> we, it must, it must be. <laughs> there, there's a wonderful series on Dilbert right now where Dogbert has decided to become an internet guru, internet success guru. And, he says the secret is to just throw together a jumble of words. It doesn't matter yeah. uh, what they are. And so he they, they come up with a couple of examples of this. Um, and uh, the, the pointy-haired boss reads one of these to Dilbert, and he says, what do you think about it? And Dilbert says, I can't tell whether it's genius or absolute nonsense. Yeah. And the pointy-haired boss says, oh, darn, I was hoping you could help me with that. Um <laughs> But but that's that's what a lot of it is. I, I am yeah. convinced that 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 a significant percentage of it is that, especially because when you look at the early postmodernists, they always talked about playing. What they were yeah. doing was playing. Well, and you, uh, there's been some scandal uh, along this very line where papers have been written as jokes yeah. and have been yeah. submitted and have been re- have been published and taken seriously. In peer yeah. reviewed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's academic. Sadly, it's become a joke in many cases, and in, in, even in the, the hard sciences now, for the stuff that passes for credible scholarship in terms of you know really saying something, um, it, it 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 really it really the bigger the vocabulary in terms of abstract and um, new terms. You, you, it, it isn't simply, oh, you don't understand. It's simply that they're, they're hiding a lot of things well, and they're get, trying to sneak in a lot of things. Well, get, getting to the, the, the hard sciences, for, uh, I think one of the things that was really helpful for me years ago is I read a book entitled The End of Science. And basically the author noted that um, when we're talking about the sciences, we have to have falsifiable data and in other words falsifiable theories that's a better way to put it and how how do we uh, how do we uh, do that well you have to be able to reproduce within certain conditions um, the the uh, outcomes that you're describing so what that means of course is that you have some measure of control over the conditions under which the basic point you're making or theory that you're proposing is supposed to be valid, right? Well, I mean, how, how do you, how do you deal with, uh, the sort of the extremes, the very large, the very small, the remote past, that kind of stuff. Now we're talking about like, uh, boiling water. I can say, well, at such and such an altitude, 
in with these conditions, uh, in, you know, being the case, uh, the, the water will boil at this temperature and every single time it'll happen. Mm-hmm. Now apply that to dark matter. They have no clue what dark matter is. <laughs> no one, no one's ever caught any of it. <laughs> no one's put it in a pot. No one's, yeah, no one's put it. Like Tom Bombadil. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no one's ever caught it. That's it. But, but now we're in what he talked about. I think his name was Michael Horton. I think if I remember right, I probably have that probably wrong. But anyway, his, his point was that uh, now we're in ironic science. He says science is becoming more and more like literary criticism in the absurdities that it's, it resorts. And a lot of people take this stuff seriously and where it gets really, I think, damaging for, for believers is when I think uh, people who are wanting to, I guess they've got this dream of maybe synthesizing biblical revelation and the latest scientific whatever. And they, they, they buy the latest scientific whatever and are embarrassed 10 years later when it's completely debunked because the, the science yeah. was never really, it was, wasn't science to begin with. It was, <laughs> it was this speculation. Within the history of science, people have been doing that since at least Augustine's day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, this, this is not a new phenomenon. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you do have a little different in the West, though, is the way in which the the, the assimilating and synthesis work a little bit differently. I mean, at least, um, well, trying to synthesize sort of, uh, and this is something Elia will even get to, and the dialectical theologians, I'll explain that at, at another time, but a lot of those recognize that you can't synthesize in many ways because the kind of alternative you're dealing with is something that has inherently a rejection of Christian contributions to reality. And so, so if you have a science that at some point has grown out of and away from its roots in whatever it, it, you know, Christianity, and at some levels is a rejection of certain aspects of that picture, then synthesizing it is, our, is much more problematic than some of the kind of synthesizing of earlier stuff, which already was at a distance, but could be could be brought into, could be used differently. So uh, it it requires a lot harder work than just trying to come up with a synthesis between a scientific theory and and the Christian faith. Um, and so that's I guess that's a double problem. I mean, there's the one of trying to solidify something that's always changing in our in our learning. Um, but on the other hand, it's there is a conception of reality in the hard sciences in the modern West that is a rebellion, for example, of formal and final causality. Um, so it's hard to have a, a theological vision which will hold those in place and have those things bracketed out and then try to synthesize them. Wait, wait a minute, Tom. When you're talking about science as a moving target, do you mean to tell me that there's no <laughs> such thing as settled science? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And then it's interesting, though, you, you notice uh, like Chris had mentioned that kind of way in which it becomes almost like literary theory. And I think this was that whole move, especially as sociology and knowledge started to kind of blur with um, science as self-understanding so that, you know, you know, Thomas Kuhn's favorite work, as insightful as it is, was not supposed to kind of slip into the actual practice um, so much as to, to take a look at what's going on from that sociological angle. But once science becomes a, or any kind of rationality becomes one more script of cons- human constructions, 
um, that doesn't have a lay to a, to the level of reality that it's trying to deal with, um, then it can be read as from from all those different aspects of suspicion that these scientists are, you know, and there is a, there is a proper critique there, but it, it, uh, it, there's also a, a problem there. Well, get, getting to the, to, to the story with the man who was Thursday, I think one of the things <laughs> that Chesterton is, is dealing with in a, in a fun way is, um, the hubris of the modern, uh, theorist, uh, and, what I think he's encouraging is a kind of epistemic humility. You know, you could say, you know, you, you, you're presenting, uh, your notions as though they're, uh, indubitable <laughs> and, yeah. and you're not, you're not honest about your, your project. So think about like, you know, the recent results from the Webb space telescope. So, what what do we what do we have from those those you know shots into the past you know looking back to the origins of the of the universe? Well, they were completely wrong. All their theories were were wrong. They were they had all these they had these 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 uh, things that they expected to see, and none of the things they expected to see were what they saw. So everything is and, and the, my favorite is I just saw I didn't read the article, but I just saw a headline that they found galaxies that are older than they should be. There are, they, they, <laughs> there's not be any galaxy this old if they, if their theories have anything like a connection to reality, um, these galaxies shouldn't be there. Yeah, and all the smart people just you know days before this the, this discovery, this empirical data has been retrieved were deferred to as the authorities who were talking about. You know, they were they're basically speaking from Mount Olympus. They were telling us the way things are. Now we were, we're like, no, you have no clue. You had no clue. You you got it completely wrong. And now we're supposed to believe you again. <laughs> In other words, there, I, I think that what what people are looking for is, is something that, that, that's increasingly difficult for science to provide, and that is the kind of certainty that they expected it to provide. It's just not, yeah. it's just not there. Yeah. And, and, and this, again, speaks to, I think, that contradiction in, that we've been given, you know, that on the one hand, our angelism is such that we think we should have indubitable knowledge, on the flip side, our materialism is going to prove that we won't, <laughs> right? Um, and that all knowledge itself is 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 constantly a kind of uh, or orienting ourselves to make sense of of our environment more than anything else. So you're not going to get it to deliver that, um, and within there is no resolvability. And this is why you have those kind of um, romantic or postmodern, you know, hyper reactions. Because they're not going to be able to resolve it there, so it becomes then, then well, okay, then we can really know nothing, or we're simply the ones that are making it all up. So let let us run with that. Um, at at the end, with, without giving away too much, because there there's so much stuff in the book that <laughs> alternates between you know descriptions of what London really looks like, for example, <laughs> and then suddenly everything turns surreal. <laughs> and then you or you're in a surreal section and suddenly it resolves into real life. You're just sort of alternating back and forth between the two. But the further along you go, the more surreal it gets. OK, um, <laughs> but at, at the end of it, what you find is that the head of the Supreme Anarchists Council Sunday is the guy who recruited all six of the others 
into the philosophical detective work. <laughs> and, uh, but, but then you have genuine anarchists who were there who were trying to get onto this council. And how do you make mm-hmm. any of this fit together? I'll be honest with you. I don't understand how this book ends. <laughs> I, I've read multiple interpretations of it. None of them strike me as plausible. Um, but that's why, that's why Chesterton, I think, emphasizes the subtitle of The Nightmare. Um, because it doesn't, it, it, the things don't all fit together, which itself may be something of a philosophical statement. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, Chesterton is not anti-intellectual. Nope. Um, and he's not um, a Philistine. He's not like against the arts. He's not a person who is trying to talk us out of uh, the creative dimensions of life uh, and just kind of reconcile us to a kind of bourgeois sort of conventionality. He's a he's a remarkably, uh, I think, cheerful person too. In in spite of all this, uh, I think the thing that comes across with Chesterton and even his, even the people, his interlocutors who disagree with him liked him. He was a laughing, yeah. jolly, rotund, uh, beer drinking, <laughs> you know, yeah. bar hopping uh, <laughs> kind of gadfly who. Uh, would you know talk to people like George Bernard Shaw or H.G. Wells and and with a twinkle in his eye poke fun at their at their theories yeah. <laughs> and match wits with them and win right yeah, right, yeah. right yeah that's yeah well and, and I think you f- you find people that uh, you know again he's attra- his you know he, he centers it of course in his his embrace ultimately of classic you know classic Christianity and and you know the particular form he takes. And, and and you can understand how those things that don't find their ability to order themselves well or live harmoniously in the realm of ideas, he finds a much richer thing in in orthodoxy that that the that the romantic and the intellectual are not in opposition to each other, but they are actually, when ordered the right way, part of a robust embrace of both the the festivity at the heart of creation, the drinking and celebration and intellect and the arts, um, but not the, 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 the destructive downside when these things get ripped apart and taken to one extreme or the other. So when I think about Chester, and I think about him as an apologist to, the bo- to Bohemia, you know, because I think that he's able to to win the hearts of people who are really not all that interested in a kind of, I guess, workmanlike, uh, evidentialist approach to apologetics or something like that. I think he's his wistfulness is 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 winsome. So I, I remember watching a documentary on Marshall McLuhan of all people, the Canadian, you know, uh, uh, media theorist. And uh, in that documentary, it noted that McLuhan became a Catholic because of reading Chesterton. Hmm. Um, and I think that's true. I mean, I think I think Chesterton had a positive influence on C.S. Lewis. Um, yeah. You know, Lewis talks about Chesterton with in admiring, you know, as an admirer. And I think that's still the case. I think a lot of people, so if we, if we wonder, okay, what do we do with like Berkeley? What do we do with Cambridge. What do we do with Soho? What do we do with these places? 
where the artsy people kind of go, uh, who can speak to them? Uh, wh- what book are you going to give those people? I mean, are you going to give them you know, Lee Strobel's, you know, Case for Christ? Well, maybe. <laughs> you know, or are you going to give him orthodoxy? I think you give him orthodoxy. <laughs> or man, maybe the man who is Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I the, the the thing that's that's so delightful about Thursday is uh, it it seems to me that it speaks really directly to a lot of situations in the modern world. It points out the absurdity of them. Um but it does it in a a well as you said a kind of whimsical way set in totally different time period where the specific concrete issues were different, but the underlying ideas weren't. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such such an effective read for people today, that if you're paying attention, you will see all kinds of connections to our current world. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's, I think we should warn people, if you're um, a person who really does kind of live for the, 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 you know, the, the schedule of the, of the trains, you know, if, you, if you're the, if you're the person who doesn't see the, the beauty and the art, uh, and the poetry of that, but just simply thinks of it like, like an, an engineer, you're not going to get, you're not going to get, uh, Chesterton. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the people I've come across who are dismissive of Chesterton tend to be artless people, to be frank. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hope, hopefully, if, if people are in our audience, hopefully they won't quite fall into that category, given the kinds of stuff we deal with. But uh, we, we lost them. Uh, we lost them years ago. <laughs> years ago yeah. uh, you know, for those of you who haven't read this, I've given you some spoilers, but there is a lot more in this book. And even if you know where it's going, it's worth reading and rereading. And if you have read it before, I'd encourage you to pick it up and go through it again. It is really, it, it's a, a thoroughly delightful read, an incredible, incredible amount of fun and very thought provoking if you let it. Mm-hmm. So now what do you give your, your, your purple haired, uh, pierced lesbian uh, cousin for Christmas? Give her the man who was Thursday it, 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 it'll probably have a more uh, significant effect than just about anything else you could give her. So, uh, Tom, anything else? No, no, it's, I, I didn't want to, I mean, I, the things I remember would probably have given away too much as well. So I think, you know, it was fun to riff off of the other aspects <laughs> without giving away too much. <laughs> as much as possible, I tried to keep it on the level of the ideas in the book, but there are certain plot points you have to reveal. There are certain parts of it that are too good not to mention. Right. I think if I if I remember right, it was there was this one thing when I talked about the mask that they that they were wearing, where, where part of the smile went up and part of it went down, and I, I couldn't think but how you know how perfect to describe the current you know mask that covers the face of Antifa. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. <laughs> yeah, but that was a specific character who had that kind of a smile. But yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the other thing I just need to throw in one more quote. Um, they, they were going in, they were going into a French village with, with a, a Frenchman, um, a, a colonel, and, and they're, they're fleeing. They're trying to escape. And he says, he says something to the effect of, you know, there, there are four rich people. There, there are five rich people in this village. Four of them are scoundrels. One's a good man. That's probably about average everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, on that note, let's let's wrap up the show. Um, we really appreciate uh, your interest in the Theology Podcast. We congratulate you for getting to the end of another episode, or maybe this is your first time getting to the end. Congratulations. And uh, we want you to uh, be aware that there are a number of other people out there, and maybe maybe this includes you, who support us on a regular basis. And it's much appreciated. There are costs associated with producing the show. And uh, if you'd like to become a contributor, you can go to Patreon. Uh, there's a link in the show notes for that. You can contribute to the show, and we do some things uh, for the people who contribute to the show, and you could be one of those people. Uh, we're also uh, part of the uh, Trinity Reformed uh, Church Podcasting Network. We're part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Podcasting Network, and we're glad for our associations with those those networks. They're helpful in getting the the show distributed. And we're also uh, grateful to folks who send notes to us, who reach out to us on a regular basis. We get, we get communicate from all over the world. It just astonishes us. We're in over 60 countries. Um, and um, we're, we're grateful for how the Lord has uh, given us that uh, audience uh, and, uh, and, and you're part of it. So we thank God for you. Anyway, that's enough for now, and uh, we'll talk to you next time, hopefully. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy the new book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, now available on Amazon. Amazon.